0: Kibitzke and Key Rats, welcome to another episode of Kibitzke Stories, where neighbors meet neighbors. This is your host, Alejandro, and today I have Steve Baker, a good friend and neighbor who were neighbors for, for a period of time here in the Key. He fights malaria around in Latin America, specifically, and he's also a Rotarian. And he is part of RAM Global, which is an international Rotarian organization that fights malaria around the world. So, Steve, thank you for joining us today and sharing us your story. How are you doing today?
1: Real well, thank you, Alejandro.
0: This is exciting. This is interesting. Malaria. So what, let's dive right in. What was one of the hardest challenges you faced
1: when you were fighting malaria? So, um, just really briefly, malaria is a really complicated disease caused by a parasite. And this parasite's been with us for probably a million years as as we developed as human beings. So it's a tough disease to fight. And it takes a complex, because we lack a good vaccine at the present time for it, it takes a complex number of actions to fight it back. So um, the toughest thing that I've encountered is in Latin America is Problems with getting governments, local governments, and especially federal governments, to agree to let Rotarians do what we know we can do, and 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 in some cases, like in Venezuela, you know, we pretty much have to deck under the under the the table to do a lot of the stuff that we do. We just keep under the radar so so we don't run into trouble. Um, we're going to do a project in Colombia and. I really wish we had better relationships with the federal government uh, as far as the way we can go forward, but they are what they are. So we are unable to use all of the tools in our toolkit uh, because some of those tools require government approval. That's frustrating. Uh, We know these things work because we've used them in Africa and they work. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so that's that's my biggest frustration, uh, Alejandro
0: so cooperating and getting the cooperation of local governments in latin america has been one of the challenges
1: absolutely mm. it really is and and it's not my personal challenge because i don't live there and i'm not the one who has to deal with the governments directly but um we you know what what when we are when we're working through this problem or that problem it often comes up well they won't let us do that
0: Okay,
1: I can see that. <laughs> how about I, I... we? How about we import uh, a thousand quick tests? Oh, they won't let us do that.
0: Okay, so it's not as okay. And quick tests are tests that help
1: identify individuals who are infected with malaria. So, if you have a fever and you live in a place where there's lots of malaria, you want to go get tested. Mm. And there's two ways to do that. One of them is to go to some place where there's a microscopista who will take a drop of your blood, put it on a slide, look at it through the microscope and tell you whether you have the parasite or not, whether you have malaria or you don't have it, and which type you've got, because treatments are different for the different species of parasite. Or you have a little card, it's about that big, and you take that drop of blood, put it in a little spot on the card, and within 20 minutes, it tells you whether you have malaria or, and, and which species you've got. Now it's not as accurate as the microscope, but uh, if you are out in an area where the nearest microscope is like a 10 hour hike away, uh, it's a good way to project diagnosis out into the bush where there is malaria and there are reservoirs of malaria. So um, it's an important part of fighting. So uh, do you want to get into the weeds?
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually want to be curious. What are the symptoms of
1: of malaria or is it still what, fatal? What it? Absolutely fatal. Okay. Hundreds of in, in, until very recently millions of people died every year. Um the UN the UN Foundation uh, the Global Fund Uh, the President's Malaria Initiative, something that George W. Bush set up, uh, and others have fought malaria back to the point where most of the deaths, probably 400,000 this year, I think, uh, were in Africa. But there are still deaths all over the world in tropical countries. And it's a tremendous drag on an economy where there's a lot of malaria, because people get sick. I mean, they get sick that To the extent where they can't work. Uh, You know, when they're part of a a hand-to-mouth economy, lying in bed all day for a month and a half or two months, uh, you know, it costs people. They can't get out in the fields, they can't get out and sell whatever they're selling, or all that kind of stuff. So it's a very tough disease. And and it affects mostly poor people in poor countries. So um, yeah. Okay. And so symptoms. Fever vomiting anemia uh if you get it if it goes to your brain madness uh pain unbelievable pain and and then death uh it it is a a tough tough disease um you know i used to before the pandemic i used to go to uh rotary clubs around south my south florida and talk about the projects I was doing in Venezuela. And inevitably, somebody would come up to me at the end. They were an older guy like me who went to Vietnam and said, You know, my buddy died of malaria. Or I was in the ward, I was there for a wound, and I was in the ward where they had the malaria guys, and they were screaming, Not a nice disease. And it's in Latin America, not here anymore, but it used to be in the US, it used to be in Miami.
0: It's in, if, if I'm traveling in Latin America and I get it, what, what do I do?
1: (laughs) Well, you don't know if you, you've got it. Okay. Here's the thing. If you're traveling in Latin America uh, and you get a fever, a high fever and vomiting, you need to go to a doctor and get tested. It may be, it may be malaria, but here's the thing. Before you go, find out if malaria is common in the areas you're going. You can take some prophylaxis if you want to. uh, And there's things you can do to uh, keep yourself out of problems. Um, But malaria exists in certain geographic areas and doesn't travel readily. It does travel, but not easily. Um, It's because it's carried by mosquitoes and the mosquitoes don't fly more than about a mile and a half. Hmm. So... um, if you're going to a place where there is malaria transmission, you need to be aware of that. And if you get a fever, you need to get concerned. Uh, if you're someplace where there is no malaria, like usually in urban areas, you don't, You know, you get a fever, you still have to be concerned. You might have dengue. It's Latin America. You might have dengue. You might have Zika. You might have chikungunya. You might have yellow fever. <laughs> so if <laughs> you get a fever and start vomiting, you want to get tested if you're in Latin America.
0: Remember, visitors, to plan your honeymoon in Latin America in the forest. <laughs> so, Steve, how, how did you get
1: into this? Um, so, quickly, I'm, I was born and raised in Toronto. Huh? Uh, my wife of 43 years. Uh, Peggy was born and raised in Windsor, both in Canada. Uh, uh, we met in, in Toronto, married, lived there for years. Peggy worked for Procter & Gamble there. Then she transferred to the head office in uh, in uh, Cincinnati and, and I moved with her and worked there. So uh, And then she got an opportunity to go international to work in Caracas. This was 2001. At the time that, um, uh, well, it was the beginning of Chavez, ni- uh, 1999 was the beginning of Chavez. So it was early in his time. Uh, and at that time, the headquarters for Latin America for Procter & Gamble was in Caracas, one of absolutely my favorite city, anywhere, anytime, beautiful city, a wonderful place to live. And, and we were there at a time when it was really still pretty great to live there. Yeah. And um, uh, Peggy worked, and, and I took care of the household, and I was her security also. I made sure she got to work and back safely. Good. And we did our stuff without getting kidnapped. And uh, uh, so, um, but in when she traveled, which was a lot, uh, I I had hooked up with a guy who, uh, an, <laughs> an Eagle Scout from New York State originally, uh, who had a small plane and he had a business, an ecotourism business. And he flew people into Amazonas state to Joramena, a Yakuana community. And I used to fly in there with him. Uh, and uh, he'd take groups, but I'd help him prepare all of that uh, for one of his groups who would go in there and 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 meet the Iquana and the Sanama people who lived there. But the two of us would also go out on because we both liked the same thing uh, tramping through the jungle. uh we'd go out on on trips and and visit communities all over uh, the Alta Ventuari, and we did that. We were able to do that because we were friends with. Cacique uh, Isaias Rodriguez. And uh, he was a cacique of the whole area. And he asked us to see if we could help him with the malaria, the problems that they were having with malaria in the area. Uh, you know, they had no, they had no microscopista, they had no treatment, nothing like that. Um, the shamans could take care of a lot of stuff, but malaria, they couldn't. And um So, I got involved in it and long story short, started and ended up bringing uh, insecticide treated bed nets into the area because they are effective in preventing malaria transmission. Why? The only way you get malaria is being bitten by an infected female Anopheles mosquito, and they bite at night. If you sleep under a bed net, you don't get bit, you don't get malaria. It's that simple. So that's what we did. We brought them in, small-scale project. And uh, 2006, Peggy and I left uh, um, Caracas and went back to uh, Cincinnati. Peggy worked for a couple more years. And I continued projects there. She retired. We moved to the Key. Yeah! <laughs> and uh, I joined Rotary here, and we really were able to ramp up our projects from there. And deliver a whole lot of nets. And in fact, from a start of a delivery of 50 nets, I think, to Jorameña and Cacuri and and Alto Ventuari, we ended up uh, with Rotary, with partners in Venezuela, Rotary partners in Venezuela, the Rotary Club of Puerto Ordaz primarily, but Cachamay also. Uh, We've delivered, uh, and the Rotary Club of Iquitos in uh, Peru, we've delivered about 100,000 nets. These nets really save lives. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment.
0: And pre-podcast, you mentioned you have delivered over 100,000 nets. Yeah, 100,000 nets. That's amazing. I mean, when you and I met, you told me about your project, you were already distributing nets. You know, when
1: you and I met, we were doing like uh, 6,000 nets in Venezuela. That was our largest delivery to date. But, We really ramped it up when um, a company called Vestigard, who are one of the world's largest net makers, offered us free nets, uh, nets that they had that they were unable to use uh, uh, for its original purpose. And uh, all we needed to do was pay for the transportation to get them from Thailand to Venezuela. And we did that, we raised the money, we transported them to Venezuela in 2018, we got we got them into the country and transported safely. We never lost a net to thieves. We they were they were transported to Porto Ordaz, where they were kept in a warehouse owned by a Rotarian, as we delivered them. And they were primarily delivered uh, for those of you know who, who know geography in Venezuela along the route between Puerto Ordaz and and uh, Brazil, uh, and uh, that route is where there's a lot of gold mining. And where there's a lot of gold mining, there's a lot, a lot of malaria. And and we delivered most of those nets to communities uh, in that area through partners. We had a partner in uh, Tumaremo at the Malaria Hospital in Tumaremo. And we had a partner, uh, Doctors Without Borders, who worked out of uh, a smaller town down, uh, a little further down from Tumaremo, where really at center of a malaria epidemic. Uh, So yeah. And we brought the numbers down. Over a period of two years, from 2018 to 2019, our net distribu- distributions really uh, made a huge impact on malaria transmission in that specific area. Can you
0: share with us your first experience of delivering nets, from your idea to the work that you put into actually deliver it to the actual like handing off of the first net? How was
1: that? Well, um, the very first ones were just a few of them that uh, we 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 gave to people to try to make sure that we had the design right, and um, th- and the reason that we might have a problem with design is because people in in um, in these towns uh, that that I'm talking about on the upper parts the upper parts of the Rio Benitoari, they li- they slept in hammocks they slept in hammocks so it had to be made for a hammock which is different than a rectangular uh, net that's made for bed. Anyway, the first really uh, uh, impactful um, distribution, we did it in a town called Kakuri. Now, um, the the, the guy I mentioned earlier, Casique Isaias, lived in a smaller town uh, nearby called Joramenya. that's where our landing strip where we came in uh, to get there is. Uh, But we did uh, the distribution in Kakuri because it's a larger town. Haoramania had maybe 40 people. Kakuri, probably the one of the biggest towns ever in the history of Yokwana people, had about 800 people. And so we did it, we did the distribution there. Uh, we were able to fly in with a team of people. I, I made this arrangement with the uh, local um, ministry of health guy in Puerto Ay- uh, Ayacucho. We came in with vaccinators who had vaccines, we got some dentists to come with us from uh, Caracas, and and some other pe- an eye doctor to come with us from Caracas. With, we had some glasses with us. We made it a, a big deal, and uh, we flew into uh, into um, Kaku, into Kakuri on a on a caravan. If anybody out, uh, of you out there know what that is, uh, it says in a two, 208. and yeah. so it was room for all of us in our gear, and. Um, uh, we spent two days distributing nets to about 800 people, and because um, these nets, uh, we, we we know that family groups sleep together in in the Aquana culture. So, and w- we did some some research and figured out that uh, each net care covers about um, two two and a half three people. Uh, they'll hang their they'll either sleep together in the same hammock, mother and child or they'll hang one hammock and then another one below it. This is typical, they did it even before they had nets because their houses are small. And and they would hang them like that and you can cover them with one net. Anyway, so we we could basically covered um, 1,600 people that way, maybe a little bit more. And uh, most of them were Yaquana, but some of them were also Sanama. And uh, so to do this, uh, we had a table. It was just, I, the pictures are great. We had a table with three people: myself uh, and uh, uh, one of the older sons of Isaias Arigas, who spoke both Yucuna Spanish, not much English, and uh, and and a guy from another guy from the community. And people would come, and uh, we would give them their their um, net. And then it, it would be explained about how to use it and when to use it and how to clean it in Yuquana. and off they would go. And we also had a group of Sanama, so we had to have a Sanema guy because their language is different, explain to them how to use their net, etc. We had a sample net hung up. It was it was cool. <laughs> it was It was very satisfying. The dentist from Caracas pulled teeth until he could not another tooth. His arm was hanging, you know, that by the evening. Um, they don't have a lot, they have no dentistry there. So when people get a bad tooth, uh, either they get somebody with a branch to pull it out or or they wait until the doctor shows up. <laughs> and uh we vaccinated hundreds of kids. That was great with, you know, childhood disease stuff. Uh, but also yellow fever, which is which has plagued uh Amazonas for, well, forever since the conquistadores got it so That was very satisfying.
0: that's awesome that's great when people do these kind of initiatives and help people around the world and most in need and don't have access to these things so you've been able to do that and and deliver these things to them regarding your deliveries what was your shortest and longest delivery
1: because i'm have you used your own nets to sleep in as you do the deliveries as well the answer is yes <laughs> Because whenever I overnight someplace where there's malaria, I do use a net. Good. <laughs> um, look, uh, for those who are listening, there are two ways you can protect yourself from malaria when you're a traveler. One of them is pharmaceutical. You take a, uh, a prophylactic drug. Methylquin is the most popular. You take it every day. You start a week or two beha- ahead of time and continue to take it after for a while after you've uh, come back. It, it uh, prevents the uh, uh, malaria, uh, but it has a very hard side effects. And many people don't want to use it, including myself. Got it. So the way I protect myself when I travel in somewhere where I know there's lots of malaria, and also I have to say somewhere where there's lots of dengue, because dengue is extremely dangerous. It's caused by daytime biting mosquitoes, so bed nets don't help you at all. I wear long sleeves, I wear long pants, even if it's hotter than hell, and uh, I, I wear a hat, and I keep I keep bug spray handy, and all of my clothing is treated with a uh, with permethrin, which is a long lasting insecticide that prevents bugs from staying on you. They'll land, but they'll they'll take off immediately, and. Uh, So any of you wanna know more about that, check out insectshield.com. And that's how I protect myself, including sleeping under a treated bed net. And this is important. Treated bed nets are 50% more effective than untreated bed nets. They're treated with, again, a similar chemical to permethrin and it it keeps the mosquitoes off you. You don't get bitten, you don't get malaria. It's, It's that simple. Awesome what
0: was your longest delivery
1: it took us 2 years to deliver 67,000 nets in venezuela 2 years amazing personally amazing. the longest was 2 days 2 days <laughs> okay I, uh, yeah the longest was 2 days uh, we did that uh, we did that twice once in carcare this before rotary and actually the longest was 3 days we went to some a series of small towns uh, south of Tumaremo on uh, uh, on Route 10. Uh, it was about 50 kilometers north of Las Clarisas. for those of you who know the area. And uh, it was a, a, a town um, occupied by Pemón people. That's a, a, a large indigenous tribe in that part of Venezuela and Bolivar state. And we stayed there. We did we we distributed nets most of the day for for two and a half days. We had people coming in from Pemon people coming in from other towns all in the area to do that. Awesome.
0: Steve, great, wonderful. Wonderful. This is a great project you have. And thank you for, for doing this. You know, uh, one of the things we like to do here in Cubiscain stories is talk about Cuba's game. You know, what what are some of the things that we love about the key? So Steve, what, what do you do in the key most of the time?
1: Well, my favorite things to do are, are, are walk around with my wife. We go for long walks as long as we, we can do that. And um, uh, one of our favorite places, we live over in uh, Commodore. So we walk over to the bird park often or walk along the boardwalk or walk through town and, and stuff like that. But for me, my passion is fishing and, and has been since I was a kid. And um, here on the quay where we're, we're close to the beach, uh, I can walk down and fish for bonefish and snook and other stuff right off the beach at low tide, uh, you know, on the sandbars. And I, and I do that as often as I, I can. Um, this year, the fishing hasn't been as good as some and uh, the sad loss of seagrass that this area is experiencing is impacted on the fishing. I also fish uh, by kayak. Uh, I've paddled since I was seven, and uh, I'm not seven anymore. And uh, anyway, I, I'm exactly. able. I have a, a wonderful little kayak, uh, and I'm able to t- drag it down to the beach and uh, get in it and paddle out uh, about to 40 minutes, and that takes me uh, about two miles offshore. And I fish in between 20 and 22 feet of water and I catch all kinds of stuff. So it's a fun day. Uh, I only do that when the wind is, uh, 11 kilometers, 11 miles an hour or less, just to keep myself from getting bounced around too much. My kayak is a sit on top. So it doesn't matter if I get swamped, it just, it just drains out. So, uh, and it's very capable. And I'm not concerned about dumping or anything like that, but, uh, it's, it's really uncomfortable on high winds when you're smacked around. <laughs> so I, I wait till for calm days and uh, go out on them. Do you catch and release, or depending on what you catch, do you eat what you catch? Yes and no. Um, I release most of what I catch, mostly because it's undersized or, or out of season. So right now, grouper are out of season. Last time I went out, I probably caught 15 grouper, all of them too small to keep anyway uh one of them was close though uh and um they're, they're all released they're out of season. uh i catch lots and lots of yellowtails usually too small occasionally i'll get a yellowtail that's big enough and and i'll keep that uh and uh mutton snappers again lots of them usually too small once in a while once a, once or twice a season i'll get one that's big enough but what we catch and eat are porgies Uh, And there are plenty of grass porgy and uh, jolt head porgy out there that are legal size and uh, easy to catch. So uh, when I go out, I usually come back with a couple three pounds of porgy. Now fish
0: personally, I never really know how to make it, how to eat it right. I'm not a big fan maybe because I just don't know what is, what do you recommend or how do you eat your fish?
1: Well, we personally I grew up filleting the fish that I caught, and that was all in freshwater lakes in Ontario, pickerel, pike, perch, stuff like that. And um, so that's the way I know. I've never been one to bake a whole fish or fry a whole fish. Um, we used to do that occasionally, uh, but not not really very much. So my, my method starts with filleting. So uh, whatever I catch, I'll fillet it right away. And then we'll do various things with them. Uh, Myself,'m I like breaded and fried. <laughs> Light bread and fried. my wife does it great. But we also will do things like um, Veracruz, which is uh-huh. done with a with a tomato sauce and olives. Yes and olives. so that that that's another real favorite and there's other things you could do with them. Baking some of these fish are great. Uh, once in a while I'll bring home a, a Spanish mackerel and if you fillet them right away and use them right away, they're really nice baked.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had Veracruz when I worked in Col- in Colombia, in Cancun for two months. I ended up working there for two months, and there was a little spot next to the place I was staying where they had that fish uh, at a Veracruz, and it was amazing. Yeah, um, pretty
1: much any uh, any nice saltwater fish can be really enhanced in a Veracruz sauce.
0: I can see that. And have you ever delivered nets in kayak?
1: No, but I have in, uh, I have in dugouts and when I say dugouts, I'm not, I'm not joking around. This is Uh a boat that was originally a log in the forest. It was cut down. It was uh, scooped out and and burned out and stretched by experts, Iquana experts. It had a 45 horsepower motor. It was a, a, a 25 footer, so you could put 15, 20 people in there or you could put a few people and bundles of nets and take them down river, which we've done. I've done it on the Rio Cayuni, and I've done it on the Rio Ventuari, and the Rio Manapieri, too.
0: Impressive, impressive. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the show and telling us your story. It's always great to, to reconnect, of course, uh, with um, old friends, and uh, this is a great project. Thank you so much for sharing your story to your neighbors.
1: Thanks for asking, Alejandro.